to keep your bible open in front of you we're on page 1021 it'd be a great help to you and a great help to me if you've got that open there and are able to look at it as we get into this passage but let's pray first and because we need the lord's help heavenly father we thank you that you have spoken to us through the lord jesus and by your holy spirit we thank you that these words that we're going to read now and think about now we thank you that they are your words. They're breathed out by you and they have been written down faithfully, accurately. And we pray as we read them and think about them, that you would speak through my words, that we might uh, hear from you, that we might see the Lord Jesus and that we might grow to love him more. Amen. Well, I don't know if you know this, but last week was the half-term holiday for school kids here in Sheffield. Uh, and last weekend, Nikki, my wife, and I, with our two boys, were going to over to Lincolnshire to go and meet up with Nikki's family who'd come over for the week. I don't know if you remember this, but there was actually quite a lot of rain um, towards the end of the previous week. And Lincolnshire is quite flat. Uh, and that meant the driving there was pretty dicey. There was lots of water and lots of overflowing streams and rivers. And Google Maps did not know that. So we were driving, taking a Google Maps shortcut. One of those ones, don't ever take a Google Maps shortcut. You never know where you're going to go. The road got smaller and smaller. The stream got higher and higher. And it started to spill over. And we had to stop. Uh, we didn't even dare going into this stream uh, a four by four went straight past we've got a ford focus quite low down um and we thought we're not going to risk it uh, so we turned back and went on the main road and that that main road then the stream that it went over over a bridge the bridge was not high enough the road was not high enough and the water started to come over the road and we got there and i thought you know, if we don't go down this road, we're not going to reach the people that we're going to see. Um, we saw a Honda Jazz coming towards us. It slowed down. I thought, no way. <laughs> and, and turned around. We kept on going. Um, it was quite stressful. We got through. Our car still works. But it was a really stressful journey with no certainties about what would happen or whether we'd made a terrible mistake. Do we turn back? Or do we keep on going? Now, that's a question we asked last week, but I think it's a question we ask quite often in our Christian lives, too. When it's difficult, do we turn back or do we keep going? When we doubt, when we suffer, do we turn back or keep on going? Is it true? Is it worth it? Doubt can douse the flames of love for God and make it harder to live for him. Last week, we saw 2 verse 6, which says this, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, that's hard to do if you're doubting. But at the same time, doubt can do the opposite, can't it? Doubt can push you in deeper. Is it true? Is it worth it? And as you engage with that, grow to see the, the Lord Jesus more and love him more. The verses we're looking at this evening 
do that. They're words of reassurance, words of encouragement. And they're words that don't just tell us to buck up your ideas and try harder. They're words that, that win our hearts. Um, well, I um, spent many years living in Greece with my, my wife and two boys. We lived in a city called Volos. Um, you, most of you probably don't know Volos. It's not Athens. It's not Thessalonica. Um, it's a lovely place, uh, but it doesn't have the ancient history of some of the other parts of Greece. But it does have one really cool myth. One really cool myth. A man called Jason set sail from what is now Volos on a boat called the Argo. If you've heard of Jason and the Argonauts, that's they set off from, from Volos, Jason and the Argonauts. Now, look, this is this is not a real story. It's a myth. So just to kind of, I'm not preaching the, the existence of monsters or anything. But on Jason's sea voyage, they came across monsters, sea monsters called the Sirens. These were uh, monsters that were really attractive and they sung um, a beautiful song and they lured sailors to their death on these rocks sailors would be sailing along would hear this amazing song would think oh i want to go and check that out and would go and crash into the rocks and science would eat them jason however had a solution jason had a plan you see jason had his friend play even better music so that when jason and the argonauts heard the music from the sirens they weren't drawn that way because they'd already heard the better music. Now that's basically what's going on here in this passage. John plays for us the better music of the gospel. He reassures us by singing words that don't just say, try harder. These are words that ignite a flame in our hearts and beckon us forwards to follow Jesus. We're going to see just how amazing Jesus is and what he's done for us. Now, there are two uh, main things that John wants us to hear in this passage, and there are two main points. The first one is this. It's a reassurance of what God has done for us, a reassurance that will kindle the embers of our love for God. That's verses 12 through 14. And the second thing is this. That love will steer our loves and our lives in this world. So let's get into the passage. So the first point is this reassurance that kindles love for God. Now, I, I think it's often helpful to know why something is done. If you know why something is done, it changes the way you understand it. Um, as I said, we lived in Greece for, for nine years and people would often laugh at my Greek I could speak possibly, I could speak it relatively uh, relatively well, but so people still laughed and it's quite embarrassing. You know, you say something, you try hard and people just start laughing in your face. It's quite embarrassing. But there came a point when I realized that they weren't making fun of me. They were enjoying the fact that a Brit was speaking their language. And, you know, when I understood that, it completely changed the experience. You know, understanding why someone does something or says something changes the way that you understand what they're doing or saying. And here, 
in these verses, we have just that. John starts to explain why he's writing. And it's not that they might buck up their ideas and do a better job. He's writing to reassure and encourage. He's writing to reassure and encourage you. This letter was not written to us, but it was written for us. There is an element here of helping us to to learn how we should live, but mainly this is a letter of reassurance, a letter that assures us of who we are and of what God has done. Now, I don't know what you thought of um, thought of it when when it was read out. There's quite a lot of repetition, isn't there? Dr. Seuss once wrote this, the writer who breeds more words than he needs is making a chore for the reader who reads. The writer who breeds more words than he, than he needs is making a chore for the reader who reads. And he's not wrong. He's not wrong. So why then is John saying in four verses what he could say in two? Why does he repeat himself? I mean, there, there are some differences in there. I am writing becomes I write, but there does seem to be so much repetition. Well, I think it's because he's underlining, underlining what he's saying. He's writing these words to encourage, and he wants to underline that. He wants to affirm us. He wants to reassure, and he underlines all of that by repeating. Now, there, there are three groups there. If you look down verses 12, 13, and 14, there are children, there are fathers, and there are young men. Now, look, we need to remember the ancient context of this. So don't be distracted about the fact that it's masculine. Nowadays, we'd write this, children, older Christians, younger Christians. So don't be distracted by the, the masculine words there. But why, why those groups? Why those groups? Well, John, you may have noticed if you've been here the last few weeks, John repeatedly calls those that he wrote to children. Now, it's not patronising. It's a mark of his affection. It shows how much he loves them, like a parent to a child. So when he writes little children and children in verses 12 and 13, he's talking to everyone. Now that leaves fathers or older Christians and younger men or younger Christians. And um, when he writes to, to fathers or older Christians, I think he's writing to those who feel a bit older in the faith. Perhaps that the, these are Christians that are feeling tired and wearied in the faith, whatever their age. And I think when he's writing to younger men or younger Christians, I think he's writing to those who feel perhaps younger in the faith, people who might feel, you know, out of their depth or under attack in the faith, whatever their age. So in, in a sense, all of this is for all of us. All of this is for all of us, for us all to have reassurance. So some days we'll need to hear some things. Other days we'll need to hear other things. But let's dig in and let's hear this better music of the gospel and let's let's let our hearts be won back to the lord jesus have a look down there at verse 12 this is the first reassurance reassurance about forgiveness look what he writes to children 
Do you see it down there? Verse 12, your sins are forgiven for his, that's Christ's namesake. We'll have a look at verse uh, chapter two, verse one. And we read there of our advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, atoning sacrifice for our sins. Brothers and sisters, our sins are forgiven for his namesake. He is the forgiver of sins. That means that, you know, if if you were to go to Jesus for forgiveness, if you were to go for go to him for forgiveness, were Jesus to forgive everyone else's sins but yours, but not yours, Jesus's great name would be dragged through the mud. Isaiah 48 talks about it uh, too. If we could just put that up on the, the screen. Isaiah 48, verse 9 and 11. God says this, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Jesus Christ keeps his promises. He keeps his promises, and especially that promise of forgiveness. Why? Because he's committed to his own glory. Now, to be committed to your own glory is a bad thing if you're human, but it's a wonderful thing for God to do. You see, that means that God will never change because he is committed to upholding his own goodness and his kindness. The astonishing truth here is this. God has promised to forgive your sins. And that will never change. Because God can never change. And that's deeply reassuring. So whatever it is you've done this past week, wherever you've been, there will forever be forgiveness held out for the one who admits and acknowledges and confesses their sins. And that's deeply, deeply reassuring. And the second reassurance is there in verse 13, reassurance about knowing the father. It's the second thing he writes to children, to all of us, that you know the father. Do you see it down there, the end of verse 13? Well, I think there's two ways of talking about knowing someone, two ways. I think the first is this, that, you know, you can know someone in the sense of knowing everything about them. But actually, when we say that, can you ever really know everything about someone? That's the first way. The second way is this. You can know someone in the sense of truly knowing them, but not knowing them fully. So think about it this way. A little kid can know their parents truly can know that they are kind and loving and caring but have no clue about what they do during the day when they're at school i think that's the sense that that john's talking about here about knowing the father not fully but truly 
because of course we can never know God fully because he's infinite and we're not. But because the son of God took on human flesh and stepped into our world, we can know God truly. So just like a child knows their parent truly, but not fully, we can know the father truly. And if you want to know what God is like, well, take a look at Jesus. That's what John said in his his other book that he wrote, John's Gospel in chapter one, verse 18. You know, if you want to know, sorry, if you if you know what Jesus is like, even if you've been following him for a day, you do know God truly and that's a deeply reassuring thought deeply reassuring you know there will forever be more to know about god there will be an eternity to get to know him better but even now even now whether it's been days months or years since you first knew him as father you do know him truly and the reason we know god truly is because we know jesus him who is from the beginning, as John writes twice in 13 and 14. And that's our third reassurance. You see, the reason we know God is because we know Jesus. And the reason we know Jesus is because he took the first step towards us. And back in chapter one, verses one to four, John starts the letter by saying that he who was from the beginning came and walked here on earth. He didn't come as some spirit or as a ghost, but he came as a human being, the son of God, taken human flesh. He came and he was heard with real ears. He was seen with real eyes. He was touched with real hands. We can know God truly because Jesus truly came and truly walked amongst us. Uh, John, the man who wrote this letter and other eyewitnesses, wrote down historical accounts of what Jesus did and said. And the Bible you are holding in your hands right now is by far and away the single most reliable ancient historical account in existence. Uh, we don't have any more time to push into that thought. But if you're wondering what to ask Santa for for Christmas, can I recommend that you stick that on your christmas list it's called can we trust the gospels it's by a man called peter j williams he is the uh i think he's the what's it called the principal of tyndale house in cambridge he's written this book to help us grow in our understanding of why we can trust the gospels pick it up uh from wherever you buy books or from santa if he's uh you know the kind of guy who brings you books remember you do know Jesus because he came and walked down here. And look, John is writing this particular reassurance to those that might be feeling wearied in their Christian life with the, the youthful zeal having worn off with the passing of time. And John says to them, and perhaps he's saying it to you this evening, you really do know him. It wasn't some passing craze that you've grown out of. You do know him because he came and stepped down into this world. And that's a deeply reassuring thought. 
The fourth and final reassurance is there in verse 13, halfway through that verse and halfway through verse 14. And John turns to the younger men, to the younger Christians, to those who may be feeling out of their depth, under attack. And he says this, have a look down there. John says, I am writing to you, younger Christians, because you have overcome the evil one. Verse 14, I write to you, younger Christians, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. John wants us to be reassured in our Christian walks that we have already overcome the evil one. And when we read that, I don't know what your thoughts are, but quite often it doesn't feel like that. Quite often, you know, when we're under a chat, under attack, it doesn't feel like we've overcome. So what's going on here? How have we overcome? Well, look, it's not some super spiritual battle against the forces of evil with special words and powers and whatnot. No, it's not like that. When you flick over to chapter four, verse four with me, two pages ahead, I think. Now, we're going to come back to this spiritual battle language again later in the series. But for now, let's have a look at chapter four, verse four. It says this, little children, you are from God and have overcome them now the the them there is the evil powers of darkness in the world you have overcome them for this is the key bit have a look down there he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world you see we have already overcome the evil one and his spiritual forces because of he who is in us You see, our overcoming has everything to do with who is in us. The word of God himself abides in us. That's 2.14. And that is our strength, that he is in us and we're in him. Our strength, our overcoming flows out of our union with Christ, out of being united to him, out of him being not out there, but in here. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now, um, the Puritans, who were great theologians here in England several centuries ago, talked of the difference between this kind of union with God and what they called our communion with God. You see, our union with God never changes. It's a solid fact. It's a status. Jesus is in us and we are in him. And that can never change. The husband is married to his wife till death do us part. But our experience, our day-to-day experience of that solid fact changes. And that's what's being described by communion with God, that phrase. You see, some days we can feel closer to God. Other days we feel really distant. And it depends on a whole bunch of factors. And some of them are as simple as whether or not we're feeling tired Well, John here reassures us, brother, sister, because Christ is in you, you have overcome the evil one. It may not feel like it, but you have because he is in you and he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So wherever you are in your Christian journey, whether you're feeling wearied or apathetic or under attack, John says, be reassured, you're forgiven, 
for his name's sake, not because of you, but because of him. You know the father, you know him from the beginning, Jesus, not fully, but truly. Because he took the first move towards us and walked amongst us, not because of you, but because of him. And you have overcome the evil one because the word of God, whom we have known, isn't just out there. He's in here too. He's in us. And again, not because of you, but because of him. What reassurance is that? What glorious certainty we can have. Not, Not because of us. None of this is down to us. It's all down to him. So John says to us this evening, he says, be reassured. Our second point, much more briefly, is there in verses 15 and 17. You see, having been reassured of what God has done for us, having had these reassuring truths start to kindle the embers of our love for God, John's second point flows straight out. You see, having heard the better music of the gospel, our hearts are drawn to God. You see, If this is what God has lovingly done for us, then verse 15, don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, I don't know what you think when you hear those those words. What on earth does that mean? Because obviously it seems to contradict the most famous verse in the Bible that John himself wrote. John 3.16 says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. No, it can't contradict that. God is love. But what does it mean? What does verse 15 mean? Well, I think the verse is explained when we see it in context. And have a look at the next verse straight afterwards. You see, the things that we're not to love are the things in the world that are not from God. Do you see the list down there? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride of life or pride in possessions. You see, verse 15 says, if we love the world in that selfish way of the world, then the love of the Father is not in us. There's a a choice to be made here, a choice that we have to make. Having been so loved by God, as we've seen in those reassuring words there, are we going to love him? And are we going to love selflessly like him? Or will we have a selfish love? What's going to be first in our hearts? Him who has done such wondrous things for us. Or what our flesh wants, what our eyes lust for, what our materialist appetite craves. What's going to be first in our hearts? John gives two very brief practical reasons down there in verse 16 and 17. That the selfish love of the world is not from the father but from the world. That's the first reason. The second reason is there in verse 17, the selfish love of the world is passing away, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Those are two great reasons, but I think the the, the fundamental reason, the main reason, the third reason is everything we've already seen. Those reassurances, those reassurances that lead to love, hope, joy, C.S. Lewis famously wrote this, and if we could put that that quote on the screen, that'd be great, thanks. C.S. Lewis wrote this, thanks, Andrew. 
it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of the holiday at the sea. C.S. Lewis ends by saying this, we're far too easily pleased. So brother, sister, what will be first in your heart this coming week? Well, because of God's love for you, you are forgiven for his namesake, not because of you, not because of your record, but because of him. You see, those times you've loved first and foremost the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, pride and possessions. Well, there is forgiveness offered again this evening, day after day after day. He forgives for his namesake. Because of God's love for you, you, you really do know the Father. And you really do know him from the beginning, not fully, but truly, because Jesus took the first move towards us and came and walked amongst us. We were making mud pies, but he came and took us by the hand. You really do know him. Because of God's love for you, you've overcome the evil one because the word of God, whom we have known, isn't just out there. He's in you. Wherever our hearts have gone this week, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Who will be first in your heart this coming week? Well, as we close, we pray the prayer of the old father who spoke to Jesus in Mark's gospel and said this. This was the prayer. Oh, Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Amen. Uh, we're going to take a moment uh, of, of silence. Musicians would like to come up. Um, what, what has the Lord been laying on your heart this evening? What's the Lord been laying on your heart? How does your heart need to respond to this Lord Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for these wonderful, reassuring words. We thank you that we are forgiven, not because we are special or because we have done something special. We are forgiven for the Lord Jesus' name's sake. We thank you that that forgiveness is forever offered out. Would you help us to be men and women who will humbly admit acknowledge and confess our sins and turn back to you we do confess that we were making and we still are making mud pies in a slum when these wonderful blessings are offered to us would you help us to see and delight in the lord jesus in knowing him in being known by him and to delight in the fact that he is in us and that we are in him would you help us we really need your help would the Holy Spirit fill our hearts again and direct our eyes to the Lord Jesus. We pray that for his glory and for our joy. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing our final song.